Um, if fully comprehended, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis are really an allegory of passing from this life to the next and the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And the Chronicles end with a book called The Last Battle. And for the casual or shallow reader, this book is kind of a downer because the magic, the mystique, and the wonder of Narnia and the Castle Care Paravel all go down in defeat. And some of those folks who read it like that uh, have accused Lewis of ruining the whole series with that book. But for those who understand what Lewis was trying to communicate, the last battle is the best of the Chronicles. It also serves as a warning to those in Narnia or those in the church today who are not truly of the faith. Now, some Christians avoid the Narnia series because Lewis employs talking animals interacting with humans. But if you remember the last two messages, Mike talked to us about a talking donkey in the Bible. Okay? And in the last battle, another talking donkey named Puzzle uh, is interacting with and duped by a talking ape by the name of Shift, who is a great deceiver. Puzzle's a sweet but simple-minded creature who Shift convinces to dress in a lion skin and impersonate Aslan, who is the great lion, the lion king, the king of Judah, the Christ figure in the Chronicles. Shift uses this fake Aslan to deceive Narnians, increase his power and riches, and eventually he convinces many within Narnia to turn away from Aslan and instead look to a mixture of Aslan and Tash, the god of the evil empire. Just as many today will tell us that all religions lead to God and to heaven. But in Narnia, as their faith wavers and their army weakens and Narnia is eventually defeated and evil seems to triumph over good. The few who see through Shift's deception are rewarded by entrance into Aslan's true Narnia, the final kingdom. And even as examples of sinners saved by grace through faith, Puzzle, the donkey, and one of the soldiers who used to worship Tash are redeemed and converted. Narnians find out that Aslan is the only one who can save them and take them further up and further in to eternal life with Aslan. You know, some cultures in the world are not nearly as concerned about time as we are. If you've been to the Caribbean, you probably understand this better. But we are a time-conscious culture. You know, we've all got our devices with our, our clocks and our calendars that are filled with appointments and deadlines and events and, and uh, all these things that we have to do. Uh, and 
In Narnia, time is measured different than it is here, or it's, it works differently because 2,500 years pass by in Narnia, but only about 50 pass by in our world for the children who go back and forth between the two worlds. Now, we're in a series right now on 1 John, and if you will, if you'll turn in your pew, I guess we call them seat Bibles, uh, there, we use the same version here. We're going to recite some of these verses together. We're going to do a little jumping around today. So maybe after we read this first verse, you can keep your thumb there or put a piece of paper there. In 1 John chapter 2, the overall topic of this book is assurance of salvation. We've entitled this series, That You May Know. And in our passage today, John is also concerned about time, but this is not chronological time. Rather, this is the way that God measures time. So read with me here, verse 18 only. You ready? Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In uh, verse 18, John's desire is to protect the vulnerable and it's clear here, by the way, that he addresses his readers as children, a term of endearment. Uh, his goal is purity of the body, and so he wants us to know that we're saved, and so he wants us to avoid deception. And he says, then, it is the last hour. Taken literally, this is a warning of an imminent event. So some have used this reference to the last hour as evidence that the Bible really isn't terribly reliable. They go, it's been 2,000 years and still waiting. So in the ESV that you've read there, the last hour is clearly used figuratively. Uh, the same Greek word is often translated time. In fact, the King James verses uses time instead of hour. Uh, and the message here is that humanity is in the last hour time, the last period, the last era of the whole history of the world. In other words, time is running out. The hour hand is past 11 and approaches midnight. So what period does this signify? So when we can't tell from the surrounding context, we look at other passages. And uh, I've listed on your, your sheet there some of those passages that if you study those and put them together, you'll understand that what he means by the last hour is the entire time between the, between the first and the second coming of Christ. Now, whether we use hour or time, the intent is to convey a sense of urgency. We are in a battle, a battle for souls against the great deceiver. And one of the reasons we know that we're in a battle is because of the presence of certain enemies who John calls Antichrist. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples uh, ask him how they will know when he's coming and when they will know that the end of the age is here. And so Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In verse 23, 
then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. In other words, I am warning you. Now, could Jesus have been concerned about somebody being led astray? Do you think? John is the only writer in the in the New Testament to use the label Antichrist. But this rival of Christ was first called the coming prince by Daniel. And Paul later called him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. But this term Antichrist causes some Christians to fear. He's an evil person. This has led to speculation, sometimes wild, about who he will be or maybe who he is in our presence today. And one may ask, what's the relationship between, between false prophets and false teachers and false Christs and wolves in sheep's clothing and antichrists? And several of the commentators will treat them similarly. It certainly appears that what John calls antichrists are related to false prophets named by Jesus in Matthew 7 and 24 and false teachers addressed by Peter and Paul. It's important for us to have a clear grasp on how to identify these antichrists who may arise among us. Thankfully, John gives us some ways to do that. The word antichristos in Greek can mean either against Christ or in place of Christ. But we can tell by the context here that it's clearly against. That's what's meant here. A man has as much of an ability to replace Christ as Puzzle did of replacing Aslan. But how do these antichrists oppose Christ? It's not always clear. The first thing we can say about them is they are not atheists, agnostics, naturalists, or humanists. There on, on the left, you've got Charles Darwin whose faith in his theory of evolution led to the development of the philosophy called eugenics, which led to the establishment of organizations like Planned Parenthood by Margaret Sanger, who wished to remove human weeds, which led to the Holocaust. And the Nazis used the philosophy born in America. We had a chapter, eugenics chapter, right here in Topeka, Kansas, to justify their actions in the Nuremberg trials. On the right, you see a guy, a more modern guy, named Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion, very popular among atheists and that sort of thing. He said some terrible things about the God of the Bible. But that's not who we're talking about. Why? Because these people don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in God. The Antichrists know there is a Christ. Ironically, the fact that some of these false teachers claim to be Christ is a witness to the coming of Christ. There would be no Antichrist without a Christ. Now, they are not against Christ directly, rather indirectly. Paul tells us in Galatians 1 that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How? 
by being attracted and simply redefining him. They affirm the life of Jesus and say all kinds of good things about Jesus. They may even encourage people to follow his great example. Pretty good gospel stuff, right? With one small twist. These antichrist types, when pressed, will not say that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate. Instead, they will say, sure, he's the son of God, just like we're all children of God. Or sure, he died on the cross as a great martyr. Yeah. But remember, if he's not God in the flesh, then his sacrifice was not as a pure lamb and it will not satisfy the perfect justice of God. If that is so, no matter how wise and how good Jesus was, his death cannot pay that high price. Yes, they will revere the character and the example of Jesus, yet they will leave their audience with some doubt, if not denial, at worst, that he could be the Savior. Pretty slick, deceptive, even seductive. But you might say, wait a minute, Kent, you just read Matthew 24 where Jesus says that some of these people will claim to be Christ. And if somebody did that today, Nobody's going to believe them. They're going to know that they're touched, that they're off, way off. Well, if you think that we're a long way off from a time when people would entertain the possibility that somebody could be the Christ, remember our recent history. Ten years ago, Christians could not imagine that the Supreme Court could redefine the definition of marriage. Just a year ago, we would not imagine any politician embracing socialism as they do now. Uh, on the sanctity of life, we could never imagine that a state governor would admit that infanticide is routine and that the U.S. Senate could not muster enough votes to condemn it as they did in February. And that there's so much confusion on what we thought were rock-solid issues. Who's to say that people in the future would not follow somebody who claimed to be a Christ, especially in times of turmoil? You know, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that when we talk about these different, you know, these false teachers and prophets and Christ and all that, that we're not talking about separate categories of people separated by hard bulkheads. Rather, I, I see that these faults, everything, are really possibly a spectrum that we will see as people become more and more deceived. But what's the common link that ties them together? Well, in John 4, he answers that question. He says there, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the way that I understand it is this spirit of Antichrist runs throughout the last times and is what these false Christians have in common. 
Just as John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah, essentially these antichrists throughout this age are all forerunners leading to the antichrist. In 2 John chapter 1, he tells us that they are many and widely spread, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, it seems to me that Satan is smart enough to hold off on those claiming to be Christ until at least some are ready to believe such a claim, just as the Narnians were deceived to believe Puzzle was Aslan when they hadn't seen Aslan for a long, long time. Now, are there false teachers with the spirit of Antichrist today? who are believed and followed. Now, if we believe John, we know there were antichrists then, and so we've got to kind of assume there likely are some now. Some of you may have heard or seen a TV preacher by the name of Joel Osteen, who I referred to three years ago during a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And he is well known for preaching the prosperity gospel, that God wants all Christians to be rich and wealthy you just got to be spiritual enough. And of course, as a multi-millionaire with lots of book contracts, he's a great example of being spiritual. Okay. But when asked by a well-known radio host, if you, if you really have to accept Christ as your Savior to be saved, the Reverend Olstein responded, quote, I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Now, this is classic ambivalence, palatable to the world. Osteen basically says he likes Jesus, but there are many other ways to God. Hinduism, prime example, just as good. For Osteen, it's just a good idea to have a relationship with Jesus. Now, think about this in that interaction he had. What if that radio host just really wanted to know? What if their listeners just really wanted to know if Jesus is the only way? What did he communicate to them? None of us would believe somebody who taught that sort of thing. How could anybody else? Well, apparently, only the members of the largest church in America who hear his teaching weekly. Then there are others who go a step further, uh, like Rob Bell, who founded the Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. In his book, love wins. He claims that God's love wins over all people either before death or after so that we can all be assured that we're going to heaven and hell is a vacant storage facility, a deceptive bluff found in the Bible, a threat, but an idle one nonetheless. Now, Bell is clearly out there. No Bible-believing Christian would, would follow Bell, right? Well, then why was Bell's Bible church 
the fastest growing church in America at the time he wrote the book. Why was Bell named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world when he was leading that church? You see, Bell's is an amazingly attractive message. No need to repent, no need to change, really no need for even Jesus. The problem is, as you guys know, that the very center or hub of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we get that wrong, we get everything else wrong as well. Now, these men, they don't appear to be insane. They're quite intelligent, articulate, good-looking, and all the things that people like. They're even friendly. But I believe that they possess the spirit of Antichrist. And that's the spirit that leads people down the road to spiritual error to a dead end. It leads us to Satan's superstar, the Antichrist himself. John's vision of the Antichrist in Revelation 13 says that he will come in the end of the age and Satan will give him power and authority, so much so that the whole earth will marvel and follow the Antichrist, according to John. Is he here now? Yeah, we should not speculate, because we don't know. But consider this, a man named Paul Henri Spake, who was a Belgium statesman, and he was instrumental in setting up what became the European Union. And understand that many scholars believe the European Union to be a major part of the end times, and the end times story. And about 50 years ago, Spake said this, quote, We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Huh. Do you think maybe people are gullible enough to receive the Antichrist? Now, we don't know the time of the Antichrist. What we do know is that it is getting closer and that the spirit of Antichrist is present and active in the world today, even in the church at large. So one lesson we can take from this whole passage is that we must all be on the lookout for that spirit. Of course, we should always confront with grace and be careful about accusations against others. However, just as things are changing rapidly in the world, they are changing, they can change rapidly within the church. So, for, for you and me, when loved ones and friends praise a teacher on TV or in their church who does not clearly claim or in any way equivocates about the deity of Christ, it is time to say something. Second thing we can, we can understand about Antichrist, plural, is that they tend to take captives and leave the church. Now, shift was a devious and conniving ape who sees every situation as an opportunity to further his own selfish interests. He's eloquent, he's superior in intellect, and he uses that to convince others that his self-serving plans are really for the good of all, the greater good. But even darker is Schiff's spiritual apostasy in equating Aslan with Tash, the demonic god of Narnia's enemies. And in the same way, the Antichrists are often impressive and attractive, friendly. 
However, inside they have a plan to do as much damage through deception and confusion and to take as many captives as possible. Verse 19 tells us that those with the spirit of Antichrist will eventually be disclosed and leave. It says, they went out from us. They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And you know, whenever somebody leaves a church, it's painful, especially if they've caused damage or take people with them. And from the passage, it appears that this is voluntary, but it could be because of church discipline. What is clear is that this exodus from the local church is a sign that they never really were in fellowship with us as believers. In other words, they really were not saved. Now, I need to make a disclaimer here. Please don't hear me say and please don't think that everybody who leaves the church is an antichrist. Okay? I think most, if not all of us here, have done that. Okay? But, and we all know that some attending a local church will just be seekers who come in with preconceived notions and maybe they haven't been exposed to solid teaching before. And every disciple is at a different level of spiritual maturity. But even if one of these leaves, it does not imply a spirit of antichrist. Although in some cases it may be that they just gave up and they, they really aren't saved. Instead, John is talking here about somebody with a willful intent to deceive. He does not say all who leave have the spirit of Antichrist. He does not say when they will leave. And it's possible that such a person could stay. Maybe due to the neglect of the shepherds over the body. If the leadership of a local church has the spirit of Antichrist and will not repent, the ones leaving should be the true Christians. However, if, we, if leadership and most of the body is solid in its faith, then those with the spirit of Antichrist must be confronted. And if they hold on to their false doctrine, they, they will either choose to leave due to the conflict or be asked to leave by leaders. Failure to repent and leaving is a sure sign that they never were part of the body of believers. Uh, those with the spirit of Antichrist, as we said, may take others with them. Peter confirms this uh, when addressing false prophets in 2 Peter 2. 2. <laughs> And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. But true followers will persevere because they have eternal security. In John 10, Jesus is confronted at the temple by, in Jerusalem by the Jews who demand, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And he answers them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if you would turn back to 1 John 2, and we're going to read another short passage here. We understand that true Christ followers will stumble, they will sin, and that their failures will have consequences. Yet, they will be kept by the power of God through faith 
unto salvation. We're going to read, read verses 22 and 23 here next. Together. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Good. This tells us that sometimes before or during the process of leaving, those with the spirit of Antichrist will deny the faith. And by that we mean they will deny the deity of Christ, either directly or indirectly. Uh, you know, uh, Rob Bell, with eloquence and deceptive ambiguity, rejects what he calls a gospel of inness and outness, as if the, the church today is an exclusive club. In, and, and Rob thinks that's unfair. Okay? Uh, in that false dichotomy, he fails to see the gospel as an invitation to all. Uh, and as Paul put it, Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised in 2 Corinthians 5. And then Peter tells us likewise in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, Bell's problem is not that he disagrees with us, but that he disagrees with Jesus. Because Jesus says that there will be those who will choose not to be his sheep. In fact, Jesus warns that many will choose the road that leads to destruction, including many within the church who are doing good things in his name. And Jesus will tell them to leave on the day of judgment because he never knew them. Now, we touched on this earlier, but what about our response to those who exhibit signs of a spirit of Antichrist? Now, they're going to be subtle and deceiving, but John gives us ways to identify them. And while they deny the faith, they may not quickly leave the fellowship. They may hang around for a while. So if we're unsure, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 and Paul in Galatians 6, gives us some guidance on how to reconcile one who offends, who requires confrontation over false teaching. But if they do not hear, cannot be convinced. Shepherds and others have the obligation to protect the flock from the poison that these antichrists can spread. Some in the church at Galatia were turning to a different gospel. And Paul says there in chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed in the Greek is anathema. Now, now while they must be renewed, re removed, we can and should pray for those with the spirit of Antichrist, including Bell and Osteen, just as we would for others who are lost. But please do not listen to them. Please do not follow them. Finally, God, in his mercy, has given us weapons in this battle with Antichrist. 
And yes, they're intelligent, they're articulate, they're friendly. Their, their mission is to defeat us from within. And we've got to remember that God has not left his sheep defenseless. After explaining in 1 John 4 that these false prophets have the spirit of Antichrist, John reassures us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So God has given us both his word and his spirit for the fight. Word and spirit was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation as they recaptured the truth of justification by faith alone. And we should renew that battle cry today. In 1 John 2, verses 20 and 21, we read, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have all, you, all, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now this anointing, or some versions say unction, refers to the weapon of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And so we, renew, we receive this spirit from the Holy One. Now, I don't know, that could be Jesus or it could be the Godhead collectively. Those who are truly saved have an internal and abiding teacher to guide us toward the truth. And this is what alerts us to lies, seduction, and deception. Now, oops, sorry. some have a problem with verse 27, where it says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This may be the favorite verse of what we call Lone Ranger Christians, who think they don't need the local church. However, if you consider what Scripture clearly teaches about teaching and about teachers, you can be confident that John is not casting out human teachers. I've listed those passages on your, on your handout, and you can look those up. And wouldn't it be odd for John to teach us that we don't need a teacher? Okay. John is referring here to the fact that after the ascension of Christ, the apostles start to teach, and other false teachers came in and started to add to what the, the apostles were teaching. And he simply wanted them to understand that the apostles' doctrine is not only adequate, but it is the sole reliable truth. And they would know this through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's truth that has already been revealed through the teaching from the Word. The Holy Spirit does not reveal new truth. If someone says they have a revelation of new truth, you may be listening to a false teacher, perhaps even an antichrist. The Holy Spirit is your guide to discern that spirit of antichrist. Again, turn back to 1 John 2. 
And we also have the weapon of abiding in God's truth there, starting with verses 24 through 26 together. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. For the saints reading John's letter, this truth was given by what they heard that was written by the prophets of the Old Testament and what they heard from the apostles passing on what Jesus had taught. He tells them to let that teaching abide in you. And for, for us today, that weapon is God's word. Again, the word abide means to remain or stay. It's constancy. So God says that to remain in the Father and the Son means to remain in the teaching of the word. Those with the spirit of Antichrist will try to deceive you into thinking that you need something besides accepting Christ's work on the cross as payment for your sin. Simple as this. Remember, Jesus plus something equals heresy. Jesus plus nothing equals eternal life. How can we know the difference? The Holy Spirit and the teaching and the, or God's word Always agree. Anyone who teaches something different or beyond what the apostles taught of Jesus do not have the Holy Spirit. Rather, they have the spirit of Antichrist. Practical application. Well, frankly, I hope we never have to apply this passage at Lion and Lamb. However, consider all the ways that people communicate today with all the media and all that sort of thing. So, there are so many mind gates out there to get to us. So it is possible that you could be attending a solid Bible-believing church and still be exposed to, if not infected by, a spirit of Antichrist. On the uh, handout there, I've listed a summary of things that we know to identify those with the spirit of Antichrist. And then some questions for you to consider by yourself or in a group, that would be great. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now as we close. Uh, Jesus, John, and the other apostles warned us for a reason. We've got to be vigilant to watch for the signs of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, these Antichrists. Shepherds in particular... But all should protect the sheep because they form the very bride of Christ. It is a battle. In a sense, it is the last battle. We must prepare to fight. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to discern truth from lies. Thank you that you have given us word for your word for the clarity to guide us every step of the way in all issues of life. You are great and you are loving. Lord, help us to be on guard. 
against any who would try to adulterate the body of Christ. Help us to respond in the right way. Father, we lift all this up to you and pray for your wisdom as we deal with this very real issue today in these last times. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.